By the way, if anybody does scan back at that clock, it is not noontime, so we're not done. Okay? Exposing the betrayer is the title of this morning's message. Not a very comforting message when you see the title. In chapters 13 to 17, we have learned in studying the Word of God together that it represents a single unit, all of these chapters. And right now, we are in this section that is known as the Upper Room Discourse, sometimes referred to as the farewell address of the Lord Jesus Christ or the farewell speech of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's rather interesting, we saw last week that in our text or in this particular unit of scripture, the Lord Jesus Christ began it by illustrating and demonstrating and being an example by himself as to what servanthood really is, to what humility really is, to what love looks like. And in doing that, he actually spent the time by acting in a way in which he washed the disciples' feet. Here he is, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, God of the universe, and yet he was washing the disciples' feet, and we talked about that last week, of how that was left to the lowliest of the lowliest, to the servant. And certain people wouldn't even be even caught doing that. It is absolutely amazing to me that right in the midst, or right at the beginning is what I should say, right in the beginning of this discourse, of this unit of Scripture, we come, in my opinion, to one of the greatest contrasts that we find in Scripture. One of the greatest contrasts. We come off of a total state of humility, love, servanthood, and we walk right into the opposite end of the spectrum. Treason. A traitor. The exposure of a traitor. Judas Iscariot. It is true, just to set the tone here, that generally a traitor, a betrayer, is despised in every society and every generation. It matters not what the form of government is. It matters not what generation has passed and whether you're into the yuppies, the yippies, the hippies, or whatever you want to talk about. It doesn't matter. Traitors are scorned upon. And usually, in every society, the most severest of penalties are kept for traitors, are kept for betrayers. To betray one's country, to betray a cause, to betray one's trust, to betray a friendship is absolutely devastating. It matters not whether it is in the area of spouses. It matters not whether it's in a parent-to-child relationship or a child-to-parent relationship. It matters not if it's close friends. It matters not if it's within leadership. It matters not whether it's in business. It matters not whether it's in politics. And I can go on and on and on in for item. 
The point is well taken that betrayal is despicable. Some stand out above all others. For example, outside of Scripture, very quickly, in Rome. Some that we all learn about and we read about. It was with Caesar. Who? Brutus. And many who don't know Latin, many who don't know all that went on, still engraved in the minds of literature are the last words of Caesar. Et tu butre, bute? You too, Brutus? As he looked on the one that he trusted the most. In the Revolutionary War, probably the one that sticks out the most is who? Benedict Arnold. I won't go into the history of it, but I will tell you this in the reading that I did, that he became despised by both the British and the Americans. They both hated him because of his betrayal. When we turn to the scripture, we see all kinds of situations. Cain and Abel, his brother. We see, though most of it deals with favoritism, if you look a lot closer at the account of Rebekah, and you look into Jacob and Esau and see the way they were despised and the way they cheated and the way they maneuvered things because of favoritism, you also see betrayal. You just read about Absalom, the son of David, and Ahithophel, the very counsel of the king, King David. But let us not forget that there's another one that stands out, and it's David himself. Uriah, who trusted this king, who wouldn't defile himself by going into his wife because of his concern for the soldiers in the field, and through the hand of the very one he trusted, received his death sentence in a closed envelope and went into battle. How despicable. The most famous, however, I believe in the scriptures, is Judas Iscariot. He enjoyed all the privileges that the other apostles enjoyed. More than that, he also enjoyed the power from everything that we can tell in studying Scripture. He was sent forth as were the others with the power to do miracles. However, he was never truly connected to the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the betrayer of all betrayers under the most unbelievable privileges that a man could have. What we come to in verses 18 to 21, I will come back to Judas, is the announcement of the betrayal. You can look at the verses again as I scan over them. The Lord Jesus Christ points out in verse 18 that he's not speaking about all of them because he knows the ones that he's chosen. You know and have heard, and I will not amplify it to a great degree, but it is so obvious that election is very clear in Scripture. 
God selects. He has chosen those whom will be part of the body of Christ. But as he's been talking to the twelve, he reminded them not too long ago in verses 10 and 11, if you scan back, when he was talking about washing their feet, and Peter said, I need a bath, bathe my whole body. The Lord Jesus Christ said, if you've already received a bath, you don't need but to have your feet washed. But then he pointed out, not all of you are clean. And he was referring to the one who would betray him very recently. All of those who truly come to Christ must be washed by the word of God, must be washed by the cleansing blood of Christ. Let me pause for one second on that. Would you turn with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 5? We'll be coming right back to John. But Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 27. Interestingly enough, it's a charge to husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Husbands, you think you love your wife? Try this one. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. As I stand before you, I fail many times in this area to love my wife in that way. Not proud to say that, it's just true. But we're charged men to do that. So that he might sanctify her, referring to Christ, having cleansed her, how, that is the church, how? By the washing of water with the word. Why? That he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless absolute total concern for his church and how does his church get cleansed how do those who come to christ get cleansed it is by the blood of the lord jesus christ it is the washing of the water of the word the word is the lord jesus christ himself and also as he uses the word of god the truth of god to cleanse us to help us to see that we are all sinners i will come back to that all sinners and have come short of the glory of god yet through the power of the work of one and only one Jesus Christ, man can be cleansed from sin. Man can have forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life. But you can only be washed by the blood of Christ. You can only be washed by the Word made flesh that dwelt among us. And he says, they haven't all been washed back to John chapter 13. Not all are saved. Only one. And this group is not part of the body, and that is Judas. All men are lost. Let me repeat this. All men. And there is not a single person that would ever stand in the presence of God apart from the work of Jesus Christ and apart from the sovereignty of God to select people out. None of us are deserving of heaven. And the question is not... What about those who he doesn't choose? The question is, why did he choose me? Or you? So in verse 18, very important to us, he reminds them, why is this so, that the scripture might be fulfilled? He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. And he's quoting 
from Psalm 41 and verse 9, which I will not turn to. But in essence, I turned you back to 2 Samuel. He's dealing with the despicable work of Ahithophel, his trusted counsel, and his own son who turned against him. Why does he quote that? Scripture always has to be fulfilled. Jesus Christ came to fulfill every single jot and tittle, and all the jots and tittle of Scripture will be fulfilled right to the end. And everything had to be fulfilled, but I want you to notice this. He says again, in, in this particular passage, that why did he quote the Scripture? Because he wants them to know so that when it comes to pass, that you might believe that I am, and that's all it should say. I know there's the word he in italics. It's ego me again. That I am. The whole point of this book is for people to see that Jesus is the Messiah. All the evidence that Judas Iscariot had, all the evidence that you and I have, he wanted them to know that the passage was being fulfilled. Why else? First of all, so that they would believe that he truly is the Christ, and that's what God wants you to believe today. That Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And he wants you to know that so that you will believe and have life through his name. So that you won't have condemnation. And even if this is the first message you've ever heard on this, you are now responsible for the information that you have, just like Judas Iscariot was responsible for what was given to him. Also, he wants them to understand, I believe, this. Why does he say this in verses 18 to 21? Again, you look it over as I say it, and you'll, you'll, I think you'll catch it. He wanted them to say that the defection, wanted them to know that the defection of Judas Iscariot did not hinder God's plan. God knew exactly what was going on. But more importantly, when he gets to verse uh, 20, he wants them to understand that their commission, that their work is not to be hindered either. That they're not to be gone astray because one of them defected and was a betrayer. That just as he represents God, they are going to still represent him and they will stand in his place when he leaves. Don't be deterred because someone betrayed. And when someone betrays, it is so devastating that it was very possible for the apostles, the ones whose very name means sent forth, and Jesus Christ wants them to know that they're still going to be sent forth to represent him, and in representing him, they represent the one that he sent, that sent him, excuse me, that is God. That they're not to get so wrapped up that it causes them to turn away from God. That God's plan is still on track. In fact, I won't turn there, but 2 Corinthians 5.20, you look at it on your own, forward, talks about the fact that Paul recognized we are ambassadors of Jesus Christ. And that ambassadorship is not just him and the apostles. We truly are ambassadors of the new covenant to bring forth the word of God. He wanted them to know that this was in fulfillment of Scripture. God was still in control. And even when this would happen with Judas, they would have continued to carry on their ministry, verses 18 to 21. And the amazing thing is, as we will see right now, 
they're not going to get it, even in relationship to Judas Iscariot. Look at the reactions. Verses 22 to 26. In verse 21, let me just say this. His spirit was troubled. We've seen that before, so that's why I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. Can you imagine how you would feel to having the most trusted in his circle betray you? Devastating. Shows you that he was fully man. But he testified and said, I say to you, one of you will betray me. He's letting them know, I know all along what's going on. By the way, some of the amazing things to consider here this morning, just let me at least say it out loud, is that Jesus Christ spent all night praying before he selected his apostles, which means he spent all night praying, including the selection of Judas Iscariot. Amazing. So he says to them, his announcement is, one of you will betray me. And the reactions are found in verses 22 to 26. First of all, let us turn to Mark 14 for a second. Mark chapter 14. Verses 17 and 19. I think it'll help you a little bit with what I'm going to say. That's why I'm having a turn here. In this passage, and we can compare to the others as well, but in this one, very simply, in a couple of quick verses, it says this. Verse 17 of chapter 14 of Mark. When it was evening, he, had, he came to the twelve. As they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be grieved and to say to him, One by one, surely not I. And he said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who dips with me in the bowl. Okay? Now you can go back to our account in John. Why say that? I want you to understand, first of all, the posture. Forget the pictures that you have hanging on walls and that you've seen about, quote-unquote, the Last Supper, that they're all sitting around pausing for a picture. It didn't happen that way. The posture was such that there would have been a table and they would have been reclined. That's why I wanted you to see that one in mind. And typically, they reclined on their left side toward the table, and they used their right hand to reach in, and there would be a common bowl, and there would be matzah bread around, and all kinds of herbs and so forth, and they would dip from a common bowl, and their feet would go out away from the table, and they would lean back toward the breast, basically, of the person that was next to them. And that is the way it would have been, not the way it's pictured in paintings and so forth. And that helps us to understand what was going on and what the conversations would have been. So they're reclining on their left side. And it's amazing that no one suspected Judas. Not a one. Just to show the despicable nature of this. Not a one. They're reclining. And when he says that, when you saw in Mark, they, every one of them began one by one. They began to doubt themselves. That's a good thing. They began to doubt themselves. They didn't turn around and say, I would never do this. Sometimes you talk to Christians and they see other people fall and something that happens and their response is, I would never. You just wrote yourself a ticket. 
heart is so deceitful. And I want you to see part of that this morning. The depth of where sin can go. But they didn't suspect. You know, you would have thought that every one of them would have turned around and said, one of us will betray you. One of the twelve of us. Oh, obviously, it's him. They couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. You would have thought that certainly by the actions we see here, and by the way, I told you to look at the verses, so I hope you're looking at verses 22 to 26, because obviously Jesus was next to John the Apostle, and uh, who I believe is the one that Jesus loved, as we have other ways, and we did that at the beginning of the study of the book, that as he's leaning, Peter somehow gestures to him, I don't know what the gesture was, it doesn't tell us, somehow gestured and said, you know, ask him. So he's closest to him, and John asks and he points out that it's going to be the one that he dips the morsel, and that would have been, as I said, some pita bread. And by the way, the first person that that went to was considered the person of honor. Chew on that one. The humility of Christ. The love of Christ. And he dips. And he gives the morsel to Judas Iscariot. Which means, by the way, he was close to Jesus Christ. And the closer you were to the one that was the honored person at the table, who was Jesus Christ, gave you a higher place of honor. Every single privilege. And what is amazing is I would have thought of all people, John would have got it, and he doesn't. How is that possible? Look, at I've read the commentaries. I know what they say. I'm just going to tell you myself. I don't know how that's possible. But he didn't get it. He didn't get it. It's frightening. Judas Iscariot was uh, starting a path downhill, and I want you to catch this quickly on him. As we look at Judas Iscariot, he was connected to Jesus. Get this. He was connected to Jesus. He was with him. He enjoyed all the privileges of the teaching of Jesus Christ. He enjoyed all of the benefits and powers that the other apostles were given to this point. He has seen over and over and over the evidence of who the Messiah is, but he never was connected spiritually. He didn't belong to Jesus Christ. He was not saved, and they couldn't tell. Why? He was a thief. He was a robber. We know that from Scripture. He loved, he is the typical case of loving money more than God. I don't know a Christian that if I said, do you love God more, money more than God, that would turn around to me, a professing Christian, and say, oh, of course I love money more than God. But I tell you, it ought to challenge our hearts. Because he had every privilege that you could come, and he loved money more than God. He might have been upset, and the last straw might have been what we already studied. Would you just for one second go back to John chapter 12, verse 5? This might have been the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. Remember, the Lord is being anointed with perfume. Verse 4, but Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who was intending to betray him, said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii? And we're told that it's because 
according to verse 6, not that he cared about the poor, but he's the one that held a money box and he was a thief. But he looked good. Oh, did he look good. That might have been the straw that broke the camel's back. And what has now happened is he's never been with Jesus in his heart. He's only been there in service. He's only been interested about himself. And what happens is, I quoted it last week, but let's turn there. James chapter 1. He is the perfect example of what is going on here. James chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. His own lust. Carried away and enticed by his own lust. He couldn't blame Satan. He couldn't blame anyone else. And we're going to see the connection in just a second. Then when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. And that's why we have death in this world. That's why everyone in this room will die. It is because of sin and the consequences. Man not only dies physically, but spiritually death comes in. And in Judas Iscariot, what happened is he was enticed by his own greed for money, his own love for the things of the world, and his only attachment to Jesus Christ, I personally believe, was because he thought that this was going to deliver from Rome. And he was going to be the deliverer. And then we found out in chapter 13, verse 2, that Satan had already put the thought. But I wanted you to see the way this works is, first of all, it starts with us. Judas Iscariot's own heart. And then when the thought came along from Satan to betray him, it was already conceived in Judas's heart. It was easy to accept that thought. And what has happened between that and what we have in our text here is that he has already made the arrangements. We saw that the last couple of weeks. To betray Jesus Christ, he's just looking for the opportunity to now go out and do it. And what we have in our text today, in chapter 13, you'll notice that it says at this point in verse 27, after Jesus gives him the morsel, Satan now enters into him. I read two commentaries that said it was not demon possession. I disagree. It clearly says that Satan entered into him, and the only way I can understand that is now has total control of Judas Iscariot. He personally conceived it. Satan came along and gave him the idea to confirm it. He bit it. He took it. He consumed it and did the most despicable thing on earth, and now he's totally controlled by Satan. People have often asked with Judas Iscariot. Did he repent? No. Was he remorseful? Yes. Remorseful is when you get caught. When you get caught and you're embarrassed and all of a sudden you feel bad because you're exposed. Repentance leads to salvation. By the way, if you want to text on that, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8-10. through 10. There is repentance of the world, which is remorse. There is repentance which leads unto salvation and eternal life. And that's when in your heart you see that I am guilty and it brings you to a brokenness. And you turn to the one who can give you the relief. Now, we can look at a text like this and say, how despicable Judas Iscariot is. 
I say to you, Fellowship Bible Church, that this text is frightening. And that this text is a message to everyone in this room. Betrayal comes from within, not from without. There are so many professing Christians today who know the lingo, who have attached themselves and look like an angel of light. You saw it in this text. Not a one of them would have suspected him even after he got the morsel. Even after the Lord dipped it and gave it to him. Never did they suspect it coming before that. How many people are professing the name of Jesus Christ and their heart has never been changed? You can read your Bible, go to church, do whatever you want to try to be good, listen clearly. That does not bring righteousness. The only thing that brings righteousness and a changed life is a person who by faith trusts in the one true Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrifice for sin. And in Him alone. What's frightening, I want you to turn with me to two texts quickly. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And if you're being a little squirmy right now, and if you're being challenged on your salvation, I say praise the Lord. Second Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 to 15. For such men, and I won't go into all the background, you look at it, watch this though, are false prophets, apostles, excuse me, deceitful workers, disguising themselves, watch this, as apostles of Christ, they disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder even Satan disguises himself as what? A guy with pitchforks and a red face and a long tail. Is that what your Bible says? Mayan says he disguises himself as an angel of what? Light. Therefore, it is no surprising, it is not surprising, if his servants, if his servants, if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of what? Righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. In Acts chapter 20, in verse 28 forward, I won't have you turn there, in his message to the Ephesian elders, he said, of your own selves. People that you don't detect. People that talk a good game. People that know all the lingo. But their hearts have not been changed. They're guiding on the tail of their parents. On the tail of their heroes of scripture that have written in the past on this one and on that one, and they look very good, and their heart is so far from God. There's many a theologian that will end up in hell. And if you don't get the connection yet, turn with me to Matthew 7. You could probably quote it to me, but turn there. Is this ever going to get positive, Pastor Dan? Yes. Chapter 7, watch this, 
for time's sake, I won't go all the way back to verse 15. Go to 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Stop here and I'll come right back. What is the will of the Father? God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son. People are trying to get to heaven by religion. They're trying to get to heaven by good works, hoping their good works will outweigh their bad. They're trying everything, church, Bible, doesn't whatever I can toss in there, hopefully it's going to work. And if I have to ta- attach the name of Jesus Christ, that'll work. No, it works this way. All men are sinners and come short of the glory of God. There are none righteous, no, not one. None of us are worthy of heaven. None of us can do anything. No religion can do anything. God did it all through sending his son, Jesus Christ. And the perfect sacrifice that satisfies the righteousness of God is the cross of Calvary. And he bore the sins of man. And by faith in Jesus Christ and in him alone, we will learn later in John, Jesus Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come unto the Father but by me. By putting your faith in the work of Jesus Christ and not in yourselves, you can have forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life. But by knowing language, it doesn't work. And notice what it says in verse 22. Many, 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 many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, watch, did we not prophesy? In your name, we're prophets. In your name, didn't we cast out demons? Rather rather impressive resume, don't you think? I can't do that. Watch this. And in your name, perform many... Miracles, what a resume. My resume, Lord, to get into heaven is I perform miracles, I cast out demons, and in your name I even prophesied. Open the door. And then I will declare unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice, who practice, who practice, who practice lawlessness. Frightening. That's Judas Iscariot. The devices of Satan, I can't explain. The wickedness of sin is seen in the depths of our passage. That somebody could get to the point, having all the privileges given to him that were granted by Jesus Christ, being at the side of the Savior, hearing all the teachings, seeing all the evidence and all the miracles, but the heart never really there And he was so deceiving that even his closest friends would never have suspected that his heart wasn't right with God. Don't you fall into that category. Don't you walk through this life, attending church, reading your Bible, talking about Jesus Christ, talking about all the theology that you know, And your heart has never been changed because the day will come that you will be in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus Christ gives a command in verses 27 to 30. He says, what you got to do, go do it quickly. And I'll just simply say this because I got to wind this down. Isn't it amazing? Jesus Christ is still in control. And he says to Judas, go do it quickly. And it's nighttime. And the Lord's not going to be on the earth much longer because he's now going to go do what he set out to doing in the first place. But the positive aspect is this. 
While everyone in this room needs salvation that's provided by God and needs to put their faith in Jesus Christ, and not all have. And while I hope you see the power of sin, I hope you understand what I'm about to say because Romans puts it this way. Where sin abounded, grace did abound much more. And for those who come by faith in Jesus Christ, to those who look to the cross, this communion supper represents a reminder of the cost of the love of Jesus Christ for you, for me, who have trusted in his shed blood as the only basis of salvation. This is a reminder. He not only wiped our feet, but listen carefully. I, and those of you who can say that you've trusted in Christ, you put Jesus Christ on that cross. Our sins. It was our sins. All the Romans put him there. All the Jews cried out. But as despicable as we have been, he loved us to the end, even going to the cross to make possible our salvation. How great is our salvation? How great is the cross? Do not be deceived by the deceitfulness of sin. It's pleasurable for a time, but it will always be exposed. Some in this life, the scriptures say, and some later. But you will be exposed if your heart is not right with God. You will never escape that exposure. And those of us that have come to Christ, may we never lose sight of the glory and the power of the cross. Let's close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that Jesus Christ loved his disciples and has loved us right to the end. And Father, how wicked sin is. No wonder we're told to put on the whole armor of God. Oh, that we could understand the trickery of the devil who could take someone like David and turn him into a betrayer. Who could turn someone like Judas Iscariot into a betrayer as well. But Father, you know our hearts. How many of us have betrayed people? How many of us have betrayed your trust? I know I'm guilty every time I sin, Father. But I thank you and praise you that by your grace, you've called me and many in this room to salvation. And I thank you and praise you that you opened up our eyes. That as we've seen the evidence, by your grace, we've been able to understand it and put our faith in Jesus Christ. Thank you and praise you. There is no condemnation to those who have trusted in Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, as we celebrate the communion service, that it would have a freshness to us that would stir us up to serve you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.